Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauker, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On the 22nd of July, 2011, Norway experienced its deadliest attack since World War II. Anders Bering Breivik first used a car bomb to attack the government quarter, where eight people were killed and 209 injured. He then drove and took a ferry boat to the island of Utøya, where each year a political summer camp is held for the Youth Labour Party. There, Breivik opened fire and killed 69 people. Ten years later, Norway is still reckoning with what happened. Part of that reckoning is physical, embodied in the tearing down and rebuilding of the government quarter where the first attack took place. Much of the construction and planning has been controversial, and there's still extensive work to be done. Today, Kristen Badtura Sandvik and Sizzle Hagdal Jura discuss how the rebuilding has been planned and envisioned, and what this can mean for the security of ordinary citizens, both in their everyday lives and in how we conceptualize safety in cities. Kristen Bagdura Sandvik is a research professor at Prio and a professor at the Faculty of Law, University of Oslo, where she teaches sociology of law, legal anthropology, legal technology, and artificial intelligence and robot regulations. She was previously the director of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. She currently leads the RCN-funded project Law 22 July, Ripples, Rights, Institutions, Procedures, Participation, Litigation, Embedding Security, at the Faculty of Law, with Prio as a key partner. At Prio, she also leads the RCN-funded project Do No Harm, Ethical Humanitarian Innovation, where she works on digital bodies, the rise of the humanitarian data super platforms, and tracking devices. Cecil Hagdal-Jure is professor in risk management and societal safety at the University of Stavanger. Her main research topics are terrorism, counterterrorism, and security risk management, risk perception, conceptualizations of risk, discourse analysis, critical terrorism studies, terrorism emergency preparedness, and crisis management. Jura is the chair of the Security Defense Specialty Group in Society for Risk Analysis International and is a member of the editorial board of Security Journal. She was involved in the quality assurance of the concept study for the future government complex and has written extensively on the topic. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen and Cecil. Uh, today is uh, an episode about the 22nd of July, and this is part of um, Law t- 22nd of July Ripples, so rights, institutions, procedures, participation, litigation, embedding security. Um, and this is a, a project that comes in very, it's very timely. This is, it started um, last year, but this is the 10-year anniversary, upcoming 10-year anniversary of uh, the 22nd of July. And so we're doing a series of podcasts about this. Um Maybe you just want to begin, Kristen, by talking a little bit about the project and then explaining for the more international audiences what happened uh, at, on the 22nd of July. Uh, thank you, Ingo. So um, the project itself is this covers a wide range of, of the legal aftermath of the 22nd of July. Not only the government quarters, but um, uh, the memorials after Utøya. And... Uh, welfare policies and, and general questions concerning the rule of law. And, and today we're going to speak about the role of law in the reconstruction of post-terrorism space and securitization of urban space and urban life. So it's sort of at that interface between routine law and, and security. Um, and, and we are we're at 
little bit past three, um, July 22nd, 2011. Uh, it's summer in Norway. People are on vacation. It's Friday afternoon. So the few people at work have started to leave and, and, and go home. Um, and at this point in time, um, a van uh, approaches uh, government quarters and, and is placed inside the, and is placed next to the tower block yeah, uh, housing the office of the prime minister at the time, Jens Stoltenberg. And, and, and inside the van, uh, there is a bomb. And at 15.25, uh, the bomb explodes and it kills eight people. It injures 209 people. Um, uh, some of them very severely, um, and and it really um, engenders a massive material destruction uh, across a very wide area. A little bit past, um, around a little bit before four, I am speaking to one of my friends who works in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and she says, "We're all been told to go home." Um, and I say, are you sure this isn't a gas leak? And she says, no, this is not, no gas leak. I'm walking down to, to my bus uh, around the opera and, and everything, you know, everything is in chaos and there is a lot of smoke. Um, and then we started to see pictures pictures from, from the government quarters and, and people running in panic, people with blood streaming down their face. Uh, but also images of people really supporting and helping each other and, and, and tending to the wounded. So this was a very dark day in the Norwegian history. And then, of course, it got a lot darker uh, when we got up the day after and realized that the total number of dead people were 77, among them many children shot and killed at Utea. Uh, but back to the government quarters. So, so in the aftermath of the government quarters, uh, a lot of things have happened. Um, the government quickly established a fact-finding commission that concluded that um, this could have been avoided. Uh, a little small street next to the government quarters called Grubegata should have been closed um, based on the security strategy plans from, that Norway developed after 9-11, for example. Um, Later on, there's been significant controversy around the zoning and the new rezoning of this quarter. Um, in the beginning, the age block, which is, is where the prime minister had his office, was slated for demolition. That block was later saved. Uh, instead, uh, they decided to take down the Y block, uh, which engendered enormous sort of public engagement among artists, um, uh, people interested in cultural memory, architects, and so on and so forth. That building was, was demolished in, in 2020. Uh, when the memorial, the National Memorial for Utøya memory wound was cancelled in 2017, this also led to the cancellation of um, the memory that was going to be constructed of landfills. Um, at the government quarters. So, so today we have a, a glass plate, which, which remains the kind of national memory memorial we have um, after 2011. Uh, but, but I think increasingly, you know, this is also an area which where architects and others have fought since the 18, late 18th century. Um, there were protests before the Y block was constructed and it was protest when it came down. So it, it's a very contested urban space. But, but more than anything else, uh, we have increasingly seen that um, 
the aftermath of, of the 2011 attack has, has become a question of, of security politics. Mm. So, Cecil, before we get into um, kind of the measures and also what the implications of those measures are, how much of the construction was, uh, well, destruction and construction was because of, A, the actual attack, so the actual structural integrity of the area, um, B, security or lack thereof, and so needing to tear down buildings to to um, fix them, and I guess C would just be... A, regular updating uh, of the area. So, I mean, how much, I guess I'm asking, how much of this was necessary as a direct result of the attack and how much of it was maybe spurred by the attack but not directly related? Uh, It varies a little where you are in the government complex. Um, So the the, the H block, the the tall building where the prime minister's office had his office at the time, uh, that was where the bomb was placed outside. So the buildings close to the bomb was uh, the, the 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 material damage was massive, and I think it's more massive than than most uh, most people that are not Norwegian are aware of, uh, because the Utøya um, attack uh, got so much media attention internationally. Um, so yes, there definitely were a need for doing something or rebuilding and demolish afterwards. Some of the buildings were intact and 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 uh, are still functioning as government or government offices. But yeah, uh, some of the buildings, um, you know, were really in, in poor condition afterwards. But you know, it's it's different other places, like for example, Oklahoma City, where where they had a uh, maybe the the incident that is most similar to the to the government quarter in in Norway. The whole front of the building was torn down, and there weren't really a discussion of of rebuilding it. But in the government complex of Norway, it was it was possible to to have this discussion. Um, but then it's become complicated, like Christi, Christine was mentioning that because you know this wasn't just because of the 22nd of July attack. This was a discussion that was ongoing before this as well. So you write, you've written a lot about this. And in one of your articles, you write about the fact that we need to balance actual threats with cost and and not just actual uh, monetary cost, which we can also discuss, but the cost to people in society and the way that it affects their lives. So what do you see as the costs of this complete rebuilding of the government quarters um, that are, that is happening now and that has become quite controversial? Hmm. Well, there's many, you know, from my perspective, I, I, every time you, you, you have some sort of security measure, there is also a a downside or some form of, troublesome trade-off you have to do. And this is also the case for the Norwegian government complex. So uh, the Norwegian government complex, one one thing is the building itself, uh, but then there will be an, an inter and an outer perimeter security. Uh, and this means that there will be a, like a security zone around the government com- complex. There will be a 75-meter standoff from all the buildings. And I think it's especially this outer perimeter that causes a lot of, uh, of concern in, in, in the Norwegian society because this perimeter will be, we don't really know how this would, lo- uh, would look like at the moment. And even though I've done research on this, we don't really, since this is still under planning, we don't really know how much and, and, 
and to what extent the security regime actually will play out uh, in reality. But we do know that there will be checkpoints, there will be surveillance cameras, there will be uh, car sign readers, uh, probably drones. Um, so all sort of technology, a mixture of technological and, and, and material barriers uh, concluded with yeah, security guards and so on. And, and this is quite problematic because uh, the, it, the Norwegian government quarter is, is not just um, a working place for those who work in the, in the governments and the ministries. It's also a place where 340 um, private businesses uh, are located with 5,500 employees. And also around the government complex, you have uh, several important um, um, organization or businesses such as um, the Supreme Court uh, media houses. You have two churches um, just with a perimeter security. So all these businesses will also be included uh, in this security regime. And on top of this, uh, the rebuilding of the Norwegian government complex is also a, a modernization uh, or a urban development project, which means that uh, uh, it's supposed to be designed such, such as uh, pedestrians and, and people on bicycles and so on will use the area for, um, you know, just for, for passing by or, or sit in the park and so on. So the, 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 consequences of this uh, parameter regime will be enormous, not just for those working there, uh, but for people passing by and so on. Do you think those two goals are, are actually compatible, making it kind of a welcoming community space? Yeah, and in the in the concept photographs I've seen that are mock-ups, you know, you have people sitting around fountains and biking by versus this idea of it will also be incredibly secure. It will be a, a place that would put off any future terrorist attacks. Do you think those two things are, are possible to reconcile? Has it been done in other places around the world? I think it's really hard to reconcile those two uh, goals with. Um, and, I, and I think that we, since we don't really know how this would look like, it's a question I can't give you an absolute answer to. But uh, what is obvious is I think that is the fact that um, the problematic aspect of surveillance that, you know, um, just the fact that, you know, you will have a surveillance camera um, recording, you know, people going out in and out of to a church, Supreme Court, media houses, and so on, is very problematic. And the security parameter regime also include a, a public place called uh, Jungstorge, which is very commonly used for protests. Um, so then you will also have a, a surveillance regime uh, in Jungstorge, which is uh, highly problematic. And I, I think all these uh, aspects of the parameter security regime is, is not really discussed uh, to the extent that it should have. Um, so yeah, I think I think that, you know, there's degrees, you know, how you can reconcile security. Uh, it, it's, if you read official documents, it's definitely an ambitious ambitions about doing this in a, in a good way. However, um, I think that there always be, will be some consequences of this that would be negative. And, and I think we haven't really discussed this as a, as a society in Norway to the amount that we should. 
Kristen, surveillance is one of your specialties, so I'd love to hear what you think about this. Well, I I think I'd actually like to take us a little bit back. I I thought what you said about modernization project was very interesting. So it's not only the contrast between sort of surveillance as a democracy, as a future gazing exercise, but it's also sort of the story and and the the role of history um, that this government quarter has, has in a Norwegian context. So this area, and particularly the Y block, but also the H block, has been called the Cathedral of, of Social Democracy. Um, and, and and the role, you know, when I was younger, you could actually physically walk through the buildings, right? And, and that, you know, that's that's a long time ago now. Um, but, but just after the attacks, the prime minister said that we want more democracy and more openness. And, and the architect competition itself, but also sort of the... The, the mobilization around demolition has really sort of pointed to quite a tension in the security regime. So, so one thing is, is the unfortunate consequences of surveillance, but there is also something happening with this urban area itself. Um, when, when you are rebuilding, uh, not for people, but for the security of people who work there, um, and, and also this slightly difficult issue of, of granting all bureaucrats the same type of protection as almost as the prime minister, right? This means you need to protect an enormous amount of people. Uh, and, and then there's the centralization of, of, of also of the buildings and of gardens. And, and after, you know, a year and a half of, of COVID-19 and home office, um, but also increasingly after seeing you know, a lot of the terrorism happening in the world, not happening through vans and bombs, for example, but through other means. And I know Cicel knows a lot about this. Um, you know, there's a question of how we can protect us ourselves against everything and then the costs for, for democracy. Um, yeah. Uh, Kristen, maybe you could also just talk a little bit about the Y block, because I think for people who aren't in Oslo, it's kind of, as you've both said, that this government bombing maybe doesn't get as much attention outside of Norway just because Utøya itself um, was kind of more well-known, is more well-known. But the Y block has emerged as such a flashpoint in this rebuilding of the government quarters. And it's very interesting architecturally and I think culturally. Um, why do you think that that particular building became so controversial? And of course, now... Um, it has been torn down, as you mentioned. But can you just recap that a little bit? So the Y block, uh, so this area was, uh, you know, has been contested, as I said, for, for many, many, many decades. And there was an architect competition before the Second World War. Um, and that was eventually won by someone called Arling Viksha, who was a modernist architect. Um, and, and due to the war, things took a lot of time. So the building only, you know, was was uh, finished uh, in I think in the early sixties. Um, there is a wonderful website uh, on the Y block, which with a lot of texts and, and imagery, also in, in English, which I can really recommend to the audience, which traces the architectural history of, of the block. And then, you know, just after two thousand eleven, it's it's clear that the Y block is is not necessarily severely damaged, but very damaged. Um, but uh, a group um, 
uh, a group identified with, with experts, consultants, uh, government uh, bureaucrats identified, uh, appointed by the government uh, early on, back in 2013, um, suggested that the Y block could be torn down. And, and there was never any really serious consideration of whether the Y block could be rehabilitated. And, and, you know, early on, the activists were concerned about preserving the, the age block. And they assumed that when they had won that battle, nobody would suggest uh, tearing down the Y block, um, given that it had all, already re received significant architectural recognition. It had, um, you know, was had a, a sort of um, at the end of the Y block, there, there was a monument co-constructed by uh, Pablo Picasso, for example, and, and Carnesha, uh, you know, very recognized uh, in terms of the quality of the art attached to that building. Um, but then the Y block was slated for demolition and, and a very interesting sort of grassroots process ensued, uh, which eventually led to a court case that the activists and the government bodies, um, or not the government bodies, but uh, the organizations involved lost in 2020. And, and it's interesting to note that um, there is a huge tension between uh, the type of regulatory power that municipalities have, uh, like the government of Oslo, and um, a, a national regulation plan. So the moment the government decided that the Y block was coming down, it was really coming down. And, and everyone who tried to post it really spent years and years writing submissions, contesting plans, uh, submitting views on a new regulatory plans. Uh, and a lot of the directors and, and, and heads of, of government bodies also voiced their opposition for preserving the Y block. Um, but it still came down. I, I should also note, and this is a slightly difficult, it's a very difficult part of that story, um, the survivors from the government buildings have never formed any type of very uh, visible survivors alliance. Um, in, in a government bureaucracy, people move around, um, they quit, they move jobs, they do something else. Uh, some of the people killed were government employees, but they're also passers-by on, on the street. So they never formed the kind of survivors alliance that the uh, Berayed from Utøya did, uh, and they have never really sort of made their mark as an interest group publicly. Um, the deputy director general of the Ministry of Justice at the time said that this is our 9/11, um, but we've heard very little uh, from the people um, working inside the buildings that day. Uh, similarly, with, with the demolition of the Y block and the H block, um, 22nd of July is decentered to a great degree from these discussions. They are about urban planning, architecture, art, um, and, and, and politics in a very different way than we see the engagements around the memorials, for example. So um, the survivors from Utøya, the bereaved, have not really been involved in, in, in these discussions at all, actually. Hmm. So, so now we've kind of covered the cultural, architectural side, um, 
we've covered the, the actual kind of physical um, destruction. But what about the actual safety of the future employees in these buildings? Um, of course, there's there's this aspect of societal surveillance of the the safety and experience of civilians that are just walking through or by. But what about the people who are going to be working in these future buildings? Because in some of your articles, um, you and also in popular articles and um, op-eds that you've written, you and others have expressed concern about actually centralizing all of these buildings. And you write that it's very unusual that this is done, and maybe one exception would be Berlin, but that even in Berlin, there's, uh, there, was an, there is an added security aspect because of the wall coming down. There's more space to uh, use in terms of security and having a buffer zone. Um, and you were part of the uh, quality assurance of the concept study for the future government quarters. So what do you think is the greatest concern there? I mean, is it foolish to, to even follow through on this plan? I think that uh, in the aftermath of the 22nd of July attack, when this um, decision was made by the the prime ministers and the government, I think it made sense because everyone wanted to, you know, get back to the normal and and, and restore society and and heal this wound in in the middle of the city center of, of Oslo. Uh, but even the, in the beginning, there were some concerns about this, whether this was a smart thing to do. If you look at um, how you normally do, do um, uh, risk assessment about security threats and so on, you, 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 there's like two principles you can follow. Either you gather all your values, then you have these security barriers around them, or you spread your values around. So you can choose either way. It's like there's... That's like uh, it's a decision you do. It's not something that the one solution is more correct than the other. You have to make the decision that makes more sense. And I think for the government complex, the the fact that now everything is is gathered um, together in in one uh, dense city area, it causes a lot of concern about uh, could this be a new terrorist attack? You had these discussions also in, in, in New York uh, after re- the rebuilding of the New World Trade Center, which was not built in the same spot, but just beside it, that many people claim they are building a, a new terrorist attack. And, and of course, um, this is not possible to deny. That's why we have this uh, perimeter security around it, because it is a, a, it's, it is you know, a high-risk object. Um, so of course, um, of course, this triggers a discussion. Um, but then again, I would say that maybe the discussion haven't 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 been that you know massive as I would expect it. Uh, we see very often that whenever this argument comes up, it's it's put to rest because it's then someone say, but we have to do this because of security. Uh, but my point is we could have chosen otherwise and also ha- uh, grounded this in a security argument. And, and we see this very clearly in, in, in Oslo after the 9-11 attack. We had uh, huge discussions about the American embassy and, and they choose to, to find a new location outside the city center and move out. I'm not saying that's the correct uh, solution to do. I think that's a political de- uh, decision to make, not uh, a researcher's, but uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that we could have made other decisions. And I think that argument of 
of gathering everything in a government complex, it, it loses its strengths as the years go by. Uh, we see that this is complicated. And now 10 years afterwards, all the ministries are located on other, or most of them, many of them are located other places in Oslo, uh, which mean that there are already spent a lot of money on, on uh, temporary security measures where they're already located. So I think also someone should take a look at the whole, you know, the whole process and, and asking, um, should we still go for this? Is, is all the arguments still valued after uh, the COVID-19 crisis? People are used to, to working from home offices. They can still cooperate, even though they're not located in the, in the same urban space. So I, I think someone should look at the arguments and see if they're still valid to the same extent that they were 10 years ago. So I, 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 I just to follow up on Cecil here, I mean, and you and your colleagues have really done an heroic attempt at, at trying to get the discussion going publicly. And, and you know, it, it's been very hard. So, uh, so you have tried, uh, the people with a different vision for the Y block have tried in their way. Um, the architects and, and the whole competition and, and the controversy surrounding what was by many perceived as a rigged competition with, with ensuing complaints about unfairness. Uh, eventually dismissed, um, means that a lot of things are unsettled here. So people are unhappy about the use of urban space. They're unhappy about the new project. They are unhappy about the cost, which is, I, I think you might have said it, but estimated upwards to 36.5 billion Norwegian kroner. Um, and I'm also unhappy about the security parameter and, and, and you know the fact that everything essentially ends with security. So, so we translate everything into security problem and, and because we don't really know what the security issues are, what the threat scenarios are, um, you know, that's the end of discussion. And, and you know, for, for natural reasons, perhaps, um, I think we're seeing that other parts of the 22nd of July attack are finally uh, being discussed. For example, the notion of, of, of the 22nd of July as an attack against us all and rule of law primarily. Um, but instead, this is being replaced with the recognition that this was a political assassination of the Labour Party's youth wing and that they have, you know, they were killed and injured. And, and in the decade following 2011, uh, many survivors have been subject to tremendous amounts of, of hate mails and, and threats and harassment. And, and we're sort of coming together as a society and, and in the public discourse to recognize this, which is great. And, and very, you know, it, it's a little late, but, but it, it's coming. And I'm, I'm quite touched and, and optimistic by seeing that politicians a generation younger than us are, are managing to have this conversation. But we seem unable to have a different type of conversation or any kind of conversation at all about the government quarter. And, and part of this, I suppose, and, and Cicely would know more about this, is, is you know, how we govern here. We, we make plans, we, we you know, take these careful steps in, in, in developing projects, but once you're sort of halfway, it's, it's difficult to stop, right? Because then all your investments are lost. Um, and, and this is, of course, also delicate compromise, right? So, you know, the, the political affiliation of, of the people getting killed in the government quarters have, have never been a topic of discussion. But uh, to the extent that the 22nd of July was an attack against it all, 
you know, this is about the government quarters, right? And it, it's sort of the probably under communicated, but, but spectacular aspect of, of what it means to actually bomb, bomb a government's quarters. But, but the conversation remains elusive. And, and I agree very much with what Cicely is saying. Yeah, and I think it's also problematic that we don't really know how this, you know, will, will play out in the future. You know, that this whole rebuilding on the government complex, it could become like, uh, if it's done correctly, it could be like a worthy symbol of state power. Or, you know, if it's faulty, it will be a signal as a surveillance regime and, and that Norway, how Norway handled the 22nd of July and and. It's because this government complex, it's also a, a symbol for all cities in Norway, how they will, what is, what is appropriate, what is the appropriate level of security for people who, who, who and, work and for the state. So, and also for other countries, they will also look at how is, how do you do security in a social democratic society? So this is, this whole rebuilding, this is bigger than just the government complex. It, it's bigger than just Oslo. It's, it has national consequences and also probably international consequences as well. And, and I think that's so true. And I, I think both the aspect of, of, you know, we've been in a process of decentralizing government offices and directorates for, for a long time. I mean, are we going to, what kind of security are we going to give to government offices in Haugesund or Bode? Or Christian Sun, for example, uh, if we say that this is the type of security that that bureaucrats need to function, and and the other thing is, of course, you know, you know, security is also about cybersecurity. You know, the, the parliament has just been massively hacked, and and one of the mitigating strategies was to, to have people change their passwords. I mean, you know, it's frankly quite shocking. Um, and and the other thing is, of course, that you know, terrorism is. Is a fluent concept, right? So, so you fluid concept. So you could have, you know, drone attacks, but you could also have poisoning of the water. Um, and you know, we increasingly see events from the Second World War being relabeled as as terrorist attacks, um, on par with, with July twenty second. So, so, so the question is also, what sort of vision of, of insecurity do we have here? And it's also interesting that the first proposal that was uh, coming up, they actually suggested to have a perimeter of 20 meters from the building and 40 for, for uh, objects that were critical to, to the national um, security. And then now somehow it uh, it's become 75 meter. And, and this is a, a this is a barrier that are supposed to 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 stop vehicle-borne um, um, bombs uh, from entering the area, and and it's definitely very retrospective in the way that you maybe you're building security for what happened on the 22nd of July, but it might not be what will be the next attack in the government complex in Norway, and and it's, it's also due to the 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 22nd of July commissions that was very harsh in their criticism about that the streets should have been closed and the government should have or ministries should have taken their responsibility. So, yeah, I think there are, uh, uh, like Kristen is mentioning, I think um, uh, I think that uh, it's also about time to look at the parameter and see if this is actually what, what should be done in the future. Mm -hmm. 
what but we need for also, you know we were also in 2011 we were a decade away from from 9-11 right and and now in 2021 we're you know we're just at the tail end of a global pandemic which has had devastating impacts on on human security um but we've also seen a number of other terrorist attacks carried out by lone white men to a large extent, but, but also, of course, knife attacks and, and, and the sort of um, the use of, of, of buses and, and vehicles to drive into crowds by Islamic State terrorists, for example. So, so the question of what is security, what is insecurity, you know, it, it keeps changing. And, and, and the challenge of not being retrospective but looking to the future is, is really a pertinent one. But, but as Sistel said, you know, no matter what we do, I mean, this this cannot be the only story about the government quarters. You know, it was bombed. People died. It's, it's a part of our national history. And, and we can't then up with sort of a building complex where it's impossible to understand that this happened back in 2011 and, and where we failed to properly commemorate and, 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 and sort of create history. Hmm. That brings me to my final question, I suppose. And Cicel, in one of your articles, uh, you write, terrorists play on randomness to keep whole populations in fear, anticipation, and disestablishment. And this makes me think of, of what Kirsten just said, that are we actually planning for future terrorist attacks that could happen, or are we retroactively recognizing that there was a lack of security? And so what I'm wondering is, do you think that this building complex, whatever it ends up looking like, can actually last for very long? I mean, it's supposed to last for about 100 years is sort of the goal. But are we at a point in history where not just terrorist attacks, but different forms of warfare and, and weapons are just evolving too quickly for us to even know what we should be preparing for? Well, we don't really know. It, you know, since the 1990s, uh, there have been a, a lot of focus on, on that terrorism will evolve, use new weapons. Uh, and we haven't really seen all of those scenarios that has been suggested yet. Yet, I'm saying yet, <laughs> because I'm thinking we are we are trying we are now in, in the I think we are trying, especially in the digital age, we can see some of it, you know, that uh, there are some changes. But I, I think I also want, you know, I would like to also look back uh, also before uh, the 22nd of July and, and, and take us a decade back from there. Uh, because if you if you look, you know, in the situation in Norway around uh, 9-11 and, and the millennium, Norwegians were generally very skeptical against everything that had to do with counterterrorism measures. And that there was this idea in Norway that we shouldn't have terrorist legislation, we shouldn't have almost any measures at all. And if we contrast this to, to you, know, you know, 20 years later and to this situation that we're currently in, where so many people just want more and more security without debating whether this, what are, what are we, what are we giving up on the way? I think that's, we have to remind ourselves, you know, how, who we are as Norwegians and, and, you know, that we are not, we, we, it's important that we don't build uh, a surveillance regime in the middle of Oslo Centro. We have to, um, we have to uh, keep an, a democratic and open society and we have to be aware what that means and not give in to, you know, fear of terrorism. 
thank you both so much for this conversation. Um, I will be linking in the description to the articles that I was referencing throughout our conversation and also to the YBlock website that Kristen mentioned. Thank you both. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Hover. Music by Martha Nuttall.